When we did get together on Christmas Eve, since that day, when we talked about the babe in the manger, a week has passed, but in our story, 30 years has come and gone. In the greatest story ever told, the babe in the manger has now passed into childhood. He's gone through puberty and all the awkward teenage years. He's He's worked through his father's trade and learned the family business of carpentry. He's gone through all of his religious training and his memorization of scripture and all of his preparation to become a rabbi. Can you, can you just imagine what that would be like to be the rabbi that has Jesus in your 10th grade class, teaching him the word of God, which, oh, by the way, he wrote? <laughs> He'd been through all of that stuff and... Uh, now he is a young rabbi, and he's just about to launch into his public ministry at about the age of 30. And there's another thing going on that's rather significant at the time. He has a cousin by the name of John. You know him as John the Baptist, apparently belonged to a Baptist church, so we call him John the Baptist. <laughs> he could have been John the Pentecostal or John the Methodist, but he went to a Baptist church. So... <laughs> John the Baptist is out there and he's preaching this message of repentance, prepare the way, you know, the, the Savior, the Messiah is coming, there's this stir, there's this movement beginning, and the people are flocking to John, and as the people are flocking to John, this, this amazing thing happens, all of a sudden John looks up and he sees his cousin Jesus, whom he knows is the Messiah, walking toward him, and he just quiets the crowd. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus walks into the Jordan River next to his cousin John. And John has the incredible honor of taking Jesus and baptizing him in the waters of the Jordan River. And as Jesus comes up from the baptismal waters, there is this shaking in the atmosphere, this movement in the sky and actually something that looks like a dove descends from heaven and rests above his head, the Holy Spirit. And the voice of his Father comes out of the clouds. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine being there that day? What an incredible day, right? And then as Mark tells this story, he just goes on to say, and the Spirit which had just descended upon him the Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he will fast and pray for 40 days without food and be tempted by the evil one. So, so the, the, this movement happens where Jesus comes and, and his ministry is launched as the Holy Spirit becomes evident to everyone around him. And the first thing that the Spirit leads him to do after that point is to go and suffer. And he goes off into the wilderness and he spends 40 days suffering, 40 days in the greatest spiritual battle that has ever taken place in the history of the world as the Son of God is continuously attacked by the enemy of our souls in his weakest physical condition, fasting and calling out to his Father. And the scripture says, and after 40 days of this onslaught, Angels came and ministered to him. And then we see 
this transition begin to take place. As Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and the first thing he does is head back into Galilee. And when he gets back to Galilee, he begins to see people. He, Mark gives us just this quick summary. All of this in Mark chapter 1 gives us just this quick summary of all of this. He comes back in and he sees this guy named Simon and, and his brother Andrew and they're fishermen. And he calls them and he says, come and follow me. And the scripture says they just dropped everything and left their families and their businesses behind. And they came and began to follow Jesus. And the next thing it tells us is that he comes across um, these other two brothers, James and John, also fishermen. And he gives them the same calling. Follow me, you fishermen, and I will make you fishers of men. And those men, too, begin to follow him. And now he has this little following that is beginning as one by one more men are added to this band of followers who are going to be his apostles. And they drop everything. And they follow Jesus. And they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and Jesus being the young visiting rabbi, is invited to come forward and share the word of God. And when he stands up to speak, suddenly there's this huge commotion in the room and there's this man who is interrupting his message, which is a terrible thing to do, by the way. <laughs> and the man is interrupting because he's demon-possessed. And Jesus, with all the calmness and confidence and assurity of the Son of God, just simply says to the demon, Get out of him. And the demon goes. And the man, for the first time in, in I don't know how long, is at peace. And the people begin to take notice and they say, Who is this guy? Where does this guy get this kind of authority? I mean, we've had visiting preachers before. We know a lot of these rabbis. We know Pharisees and Sadducees and all of these guys with the fancy robes. None of them speak with this kind of authority that they even take authority over demons. And the movement is beginning. And they go from there, according to Mark's gospel, right to Peter's house. And in Peter's house, they go probably after a long day, a, a, a difficult day, and they go for some rest. And when they get there, they find that Peter's mother-in-law is very, very ill. And Jesus goes in and he touches her. And the moment he touches her, the fever leaves. And he restores her, and she gets up and begins to make dinner for them. And the word begins to get out. He casts out demons. He has authority over sickness. Who is this guy? Where does he get the power to do these things that he's doing? And the word begins to spread around Galilee. And a crowd begins to form at Peter's house. And the scripture says, they were bringing to him all who were sick, or diseased, or possessed. And the crowd gets huge. And I just want you to picture this crowd, right? Just picture this crowd. They're just showing up outside this little, this little hut, this little house. And, and there's, there's a multitude of people. And, and there's people carrying people on stretchers. There's other people who are hobbling in on crutches. There are people in makeshift wheelchairs. There are people that are leprous, right? lepers, you lepers, you wait over there. Somebody's organizing all this. The lepers over here and, and, and all the crippled people over here and let's get the demon-possessed people over here and we're just, it's, imagine the, the chaos of this situation. Sorry if I labeled your section in a way you didn't like it. 
<laughs> just occurred to me what I was doing, sorry. And the chaos is everywhere, and in the midst of this chaos is this, this figure, Jesus. And he just speaks, and demons flee. He touches lepers. Did you hear that? Touches lepers. You don't touch lepers. Why don't you touch lepers? Because leprosy goes from them to you. But when Jesus touches lepers, purity goes from him to them. And people look and they're astonished. They've never seen anything like this. They've never even heard of anything like this. This is the most amazing thing that they have ever seen. And as people get healed, the crowd gets bigger. People are running from the place telling people. People are just taking off running to other villages. You've got to come. You've got to see what's happening. It's the most amazing thing. Get your dad. I know he's injured. We'll carry him because he's going to walk home. It's going to be the most amazing thing. And people are just coming from everywhere. And the crowd is getting bigger and bigger. And here's Jesus just graciously, lovingly touching people, praying over people, casting demons out of people. And one at a time, people are rejoicing and singing and praising God. Can you imagine this scene? It's astonishing. And it goes on and on and on and on. And the crowd doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. And the people won't leave. And it's long past nightfall. It's into the wee hours of the morning. And one at a time, they're bringing them to Jesus until finally somebody suggests that they take a break and they take a break. And the people are just waiting and the crowd is getting bigger and bigger. And when it comes time to get back into this ministry again, they go to get Jesus and they can't find him. And they say, well, where is he? Everybody begins to look around. And the people that have been waiting outside are starting to get anxious. They're starting to get angry. They're starting to get concerned. What if I was too late? I keep seeing people go in crippled and come out whole. What if I was too late? And the crowd is beginning to murmur and question and everybody's beginning to wonder. And these new followers of Jesus, they say, we better do something. And so they spread out and they go looking for Jesus. Where could he be? I mean, how far could he have gone? How did we miss him? Where did he go? And they go looking for him. And the scripture tells us in Mark chapter 1 that when they found him, he was alone in a quiet place, praying. And they said to him, Master, teacher, everyone is looking for you. Do you ever feel that way? <laughs> Everyone's looking for you. I mean, that place is packed. You should see the place. We didn't do any publicity. We didn't have any handouts, no billboards, nothing on social media. They just came. And the crowd is growing. It's amazing. This ministry of yours is launching. It's so incredible. Come on. They're waiting for you. And Jesus' response, I've read this a million times, and it still shocks me every time. Jesus' response is this. He says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. And the scripture tells us that Jesus walked away from a crowd that desperately needed him and was waiting for ministry. Now, I read that as a pastor, and I shake my head and go, man, I wish Jesus had asked me some advice about this. Because, you know what, every pastor knows this. Getting the crowd's the whole deal. You got to get the crowd. 
You got to get the people to come. If you have all the great ministry in the world, but nobody will come and be ministered to, it doesn't much matter, right? Every pastor around town is trying to figure out ways to get people to come. If you can get the crowd, then something great can happen. Jesus has got the crowd and he leaves them there and goes away. And I shake my head because I can tell you as a pastor, a crowd's a good thing. It's the mark of a successful ministry, isn't it? Amazing things are happening. More and more people want to come. It's a pastor's dream come true. And Jesus walks away from it. And he could have stayed. He could have kept ministering to people, and the people would have kept coming. As long as he ministered, the crowd would have never gotten any smaller. The word would have just kept getting out and the people would have kept coming and he could have stayed there and his ministry was launching. It was taking off. This is amazing. He could have stayed. Eventually, they would have outgrown Peter's house and they would have had to do a capital fundraising thing and they would have built new buildings and they would have done all that kind of stuff. And he walked away. His name could have been known throughout all the surrounding regions. He could have been blessing people every hour of every day, delivering them from Satan's hold. And he walks away. But actually, he wasn't walking away from anything. He was walking toward something. Because he said himself, let's go to other places where I can spread the gospel for that is why I came. He healed the sick all the time. He loved to heal the sick. Moved with compassion, the scripture tells us again and again. He touched the sick and healed the blind and cast demons out of those who were possessed. And yet, that's not why he came. He came to start a movement. He came to start a movement that would change everything for all time. And to do that, Jesus had to leave the building. He had to get out of the place where the ministry was happening, and he had to go to where the people were who didn't even know they needed ministry. He had to leave the building. And now, we skip ahead in the story another 20 centuries or so. And the year is 1987. It's the same story, the same movement. It's just another time. It's just another place. And there's a group of believers in Orange County who hear the same call from God that Peter and Andrew and James and John heard, follow me. And the Lord gives them a vision and a sense of purpose of what is next in his movement. And they begin to pray for a little community that is not even really born yet. It's just beginning to happen. They're grading the hillsides at the end, the east end of the San Gabriel Valley. This little town called Diamond Bar, it's just hills and cattle, but they're grading and they're building houses. And these people in Orange County begin to realize they're going to put thousands of houses in that community and they're going to need, they're going to need the presence of Jesus. We need to plant a church. And they begin to pray for the people who will be moving into that community. And as time goes on, they invest some money and they turn this little room down in the basement of the church into a phone center. Remember back in the days when phones were plugged into things? 
and they had a phone center. And they got what was called, remember back in the days when you had phone books, right? And you use them for something other than holding the door open. And they got what's called a reverse directory and they looked up by address and they called every single family in the city of Diamond Bar. And they asked them this question, do you have a local church that you're a part of? And if the answer was yes, they said, praise the Lord, God bless you and have a great day. And they hung up. And if the answer was no, they said, we're, we're about to start a new church in your community and we would love to invite you to the first service. And in 1987, they, they made all of the arrangements. They made all of the calls. They, they even called this pastor and his family from, from all the way up in Canada. And, and this pastor is just pastoring and ministering up in Canada, but there was connections to this church and some of the people, and they called him, and they said, would you be willing to uproot your family, to leave that country, to come to another country, and to begin to minister to these people in this new community, none of whom you have ever met? And he uprooted his family, and he came down there, and his first day of meeting, most of the people in that church, was the first day they had services. And his son Josh is with us today. Wave, Josh. That's Josh. Josh was there in the first service. Um, Josh was a little kid when I met him. Now he's like 75. <laughs> Something like that. Josh and his family came down. And on that first Sunday, there was nobody that was in charge. There's just the pastor and the group of people who'd been making the phone calls. They sent their worship team, some musicians up from the church in Orange County. They would come up and they would play in Diamond Bar and then rush back down to Orange County and play down at the church down there. And, and these people were, tr were making this sacrifice. And as people walked in on that first Sunday, they had people at the door shaking hands and greeting. And they said, welcome to our church. We're so glad you're here. Would you like to help take the offering today? You know? <laughs> And that was kind of how it was. There was like nobody trained, nobody ready. And the people came and they began to preach the gospel. And that first Sunday, some people came to know Jesus. And that continued week after week. And this little church got established, meeting in this junior high school auditorium. And a church was born. It was a, it was a church plant, technically. But there's a bunch of people saying, hey, we're, we're going to serve Jesus here. And when the people started to show up, their lives started to change. And then, and then one Sunday, as the greeters were greeting people and welcoming, they noticed this young couple that was coming in, exceptionally good-looking young couple. <laughs> At least one of them. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. I can't believe you would insult her like that. But... <laughs> this couple shows up, no children, and looking for a church new to the area, and, and, and their names were Doug and Christy Spriggs. And we came in that day, and we sat there in that auditorium, and we heard the Word of God preached, and we were just so excited about what God was doing in that place, having had a background in ministry and looking for a place where we could, we could tie in and, and serve and all of that kind of stuff. And after a few weeks, um, the pastor Cliff came to our home to meet with us, and we told him about our background in youth ministry. And he said, listen, you probably noticed we don't have very many teenagers. How many teenagers do we have, Josh? Two. <laughs> 
we had two, Josh. Josh was in the eighth grade, and there was a girl named Denise who was in the seventh grade, and that was our youth group. And they said, we want you to, want you to begin working with these teenagers. And we started working with these teenagers, and we took them out to pizza, Christy and I, and we said, listen, would you guys like to see your friends reach for Jesus? And they got excited about that, and we started a youth ministry. And when we started that youth ministry, it was incredible. They just started telling their friends, and their friends started coming, and their friends started telling their friends. And before long, there was just teenagers everywhere. And kids are coming to know Christ, and the people in the church are looking around on Sunday morning and go, man, the average age of our church has been cut in half in the last four months. There's just teenagers everywhere, and great things are beginning to happen, and people's lives are getting changed, and we were so excited, Christy and I, to be a part of this church and developing relationship with Cliff and working together in ministry, and then the hard times came. Pastor Cliff sat me down and said, listen, um, there's this church in Idaho that's been talking to me, and I've been praying about this, and I really believe that God's calling me to go to Idaho. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I understand he would call you from Canada to California, but California to Idaho makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I, I believe God was calling us to go, and so we're going to wrap things up here, and we're, we're going to go. And... Uh, I said, okay, um, what are we going to do? And he said, I think um, if you could continue doing what you're doing with youth ministry, which by that time had become rather significant, and um, also preach on Sundays for about six weeks, that should probably give us enough time to find a new pastor and get things going. And I stand here today to tell you six weeks has become 25 years. <laughs> so, so today... Today's the 25th anniversary of that first Sunday um, when <laughs> absolutely 100% committed to never being the senior pastor, I stepped into that pulpit. And I got to tell you guys, the church that was there, I mean, a third of them left immediately when Cliff left. And there wasn't enough people. There wasn't enough resources it, let's just say this, it didn't take long to take the offering on Sundays, <laughs> and I had no idea how to lead that church. I had no idea how that church could even stay alive, let alone thrive and be impactful. And I'm going to tell you, as I prepared to preach that first Sunday in 1992, I have never before and probably never since prayed so hard over a sermon because I had no idea what God wanted to say to these people. But as I worked and labored in the Word that week, I came across the book of Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, there was a verse that just jumped out at me. And as many of you know from experience, I have preached from that verse every first week of January for 25 years now. And so this sermon today is called where do we go from here, part 26? And it is the 26th installment in the longest running sermon series in the history of the world. <laughs> and I grappled with this question, does God have a future for our church? And that verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, spoke to me so loudly that I couldn't ignore it. 
I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read it together. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Let's read it together. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Sit down. Now, every January, I give you a little history lesson about the church's history, and I tell you about that terrible day when Cliff said, I'm leaving, and I tell you about how I didn't know what to preach, and then God gave me Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. So if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard that story, and you're looking at your watch going, oh, dear God, that's just the introduction. <laughs> but let me ask you this. How many of you are new to Grace Fellowship since last January 1st? Raise your hand. Several of you. And, and there's a whole bunch of people who don't know that story. And, and I just gave you the, the tip-top part of the iceberg there. But what I don't do usually is go as far back as I did today to that day when Jesus was baptized and the movement began. But I want us to understand something, church. We are riding the same wave that Jesus started that day. We're a part of the same movement that shook the Middle East. The same movement that spread down into Africa and over into Europe and skipped an ocean to a new continent and spread all the way across North America and skipped another ocean and went all the way to Asia where there's probably more Christians today in Asia than there are anywhere else in the world. And the gospel is heading south into South America, south into Africa. We're seeing more people come to know Jesus Christ in the southern hemisphere alone today than we have ever seen worldwide before. It's an astonishing movement. It's not a program. It's not a philosophy. It's not an idea that Jesus began to push. Our story as a church began when Jesus walked into Galilee, started casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching the gospel. He could have stayed at Peter's house. They would have had an amazing ministry there. But he came to create a movement, not an institution. And before he returned to heaven, he gathered his disciples, he commissioned them to continue the movement that he began. And I'm just going to read to you the familiar verse at the end of Matthew 28, right before he ascends into heaven. This is what Jesus says to them and to us. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the torch has been passed from Jesus to his apostles and from his apostles to their followers, and from their followers to their followers, generation after generation after generation, the same flame, the same torch, the same gospel, the same movement continues generation after generation. And as you read church history, you go, man, there were some dark times. Man, that flame was just barely burning for a while. You're right, it's true. 
And yet God sent an incredible reformation that just swept through Europe and into the United States and changed everything. And today, there are billions and billions and billions of people who have come to know Jesus Christ, most of whom are already with Him in heaven. Because Jesus lit a torch that day and began to pass it from one generation to the next. And in this generation, it's been handed to us for just such a time as this. Now, we have some amazing stories to tell about God's faithfulness just in the life of Grace Fellowship over those years. You're saying, well, you were telling about a church that began in Diamond Bar. Yeah, we started in Diamond Bar. From there, we moved to Roland Heights. From there, we moved up here to Duarte. Then there was a year that we met in Monrovia. Then we came back to Duarte. There was, there's been all kinds of iterations of what God has been doing, but this church has continued, and the torch continues to be carried. And there are so many stories to tell where you just sit back and go, wow, God is awesome. God must be serious about his calling upon this church. God must be serious about the vision that he has for this church. It's incredible to tell the stories. If you come to the membership information meeting next week, you'll hear some of those stories. But I don't have time for them today. Here's what I want to tell you. As great as those stories are, God has not called us to live in the past. He's called us to live in the present for the future. And that's where we're at today. For this congregation, it has been a wild ride. There have been ups and downs. There have been things that have happened where I've just held my head and said, oh God, how could this possibly be? I thought, I thought the church was dead the day that Cliff left. And, and then many times after that, when key leaders were moved by God to another part of the country or some other ministry somewhere, and I thought, well, that's it. I guess we'll just have to close the doors. There's no way for this to continue without those people. And God sends more people. And God trains up more people. And God uses more people. And I look around this congregation on a Sunday morning, and I see so much giftedness. I see so many people filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to serve the Lord. And then I listen to the stories about what God is doing when we leave this room on Sundays and we go out there and we're among people who just need to be touched by Jesus. And it excites me. Jesus began a movement. And I can tell you this, what lies ahead for this church is way more exciting than what lies behind. He began a movement. And how do you do it? How did he create and empower and sustain such an incredible movement that is changing the world even to this day? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. It's a very simple answer. He did it through relationships. He did it through relationships. My friends, if Jesus taught us anything, he taught us that life is all about relationships. One day, some lawyers came to him. They said, look, we've been studying the Old Testament, and we have a question for you. There's all these commandments in there. Which is really the most important one? And Jesus didn't skip a beat. He answered their question quickly. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. It's about your relationship with God and your relationship with people. That's it. That's what this movement is about. You see the emphasis on relationships? Love God, 
Love people. Amen. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> so well, what about the change in the word, world part? The change in the world takes care of itself, you guys. You love God and love people, the world will never be the same. will never be the same. Jesus proved it. His apostles proved it. The church in the first four centuries under all of that oppression proved it. The church in the Reformation proved it. The history of Grace Fellowship has proved it. The world will never be the same when you get a bunch of people who are so excited about loving Jesus that they can't help but love other people. When that happens, the movement moves. That's what God's called us to. Jesus set the example. He made his relationship with the Father priority one. When there were so many people to be ministered to, I mean real needs, where did they find him? Praying alone with his Father. Developing that vertical relationship. Only then would he be able to even sustain the horizontal relationships. It's not about a seasoned pastor who knows the right way to lead a church. It's not about a building or a zip code or, or anything location-based. It's not about impressive programs by talented people who know how to do the stuff that people expect from a church. You know what? Let, let's just get this out of the way. When it comes to programs by talented people, the world doesn't need us. Right? I mean, have you been to Disneyland? <laughs> programs by talented people? I mean, you can watch programs by talented people on your cell phone all day long that are way more impressive than what we do here. Ricky got a fancy new guitar. Sounded good today, didn't it? You know how many people have fancy guitars? Lots of them. It's not about the programs and the talents and all of that stuff. This movement's about relationships. Relationship to God. So let me just ask you this. How is your relationship to God going? Not the person next to you, not the person who didn't come today even though you invited them. How's your relationship with God going? As you enter 2017 and you think about what could be different about this year, how's your relationship with God going? Are you growing? Are you growing as a Christian? And before you say yes, ask yourself this question. How? How are you growing? Is it noticeable? Is it measurable? Can you, can you even think of specific ways that, that you're more mature in Christ today than you were on January 1st of 2016? Because we need to be growing, you guys. In our own relationship with Jesus, we need to be growing. And some people are just too busy treading water to even think about growing. We're just trying to keep from sinking. And God says, I got something different in mind. Let me ask you to think about this. You think about your relationship with God. Where is your best strength spent? If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus today, this question is for you. Who or what gets your best? Your best hours of the day, your best time, your best focus, your best efforts, your best intellect, your best emotion. Where does your best go? Because, because most of us have jobs or school or different things like that 
that, that say, listen, you've got to give me eight hours a day. You're going to have to give me 40 hours a week. You're going to have to focus. And we have, we have bosses standing over our shoulders, and they're, they're watching, and they're checking, and they, they expect us to give our best. And by the way, so does God. I'm not telling you to stop giving your best in school and work and all those kind of places. But let me ask you this. What's going to last for eternity? God, His Word, and the souls of men. That's it. Where are you giving your best? Who gets your focus? Does God get your leftovers? You give Him attention when you get a chance, if you're not too tired. Listen, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. How many times in 2016 I fell asleep while praying? <sighs> Lots. Does God get your best? And, and if, you're, if you're not making progress in your walk with the Lord, you, then you need to understand you are regressing. They're, they're, the movement is happening, right? And, and it's moving. And if you're not moving with it, you're moving backward. And in your relationship with the Lord has got to be priority one. Jesus said it's all about relationships. 2017, Lord, what's my year going to be about? It's going to be about your relationship with God. It's what it's always supposed to be about. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to your relationship with people. And as I talk about that, let me just begin with the relationship with people in the body of Christ. You know, the scripture goes on and on and on talking about the importance of unity in God's church, about the one another's of scripture, bear one another's burdens, love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, and it goes on and on and on. And basically what God's Word says is that if we don't weave the people of God together into one unified body who actually loves each other, then it doesn't matter how good our message is, the people out there will ignore it because we don't even love each other. And you say, you guys, the statistics I'm reading these days about the lack of influence of the church in America is heartbreaking. Why? Why are people walking out of churches instead of walking in? A big part of it has to do with the fact that at least from their perception, we don't even love one another and we don't come close to loving them. 2017, how are you personally doing with this issue of loving the body of Christ, your own family? the people in your local church, other believers around you with whom you could be joining arms. And before you answer that, let me remind you that in practical terms, love is meeting needs. It's not just, oh, I have a warm feeling toward that person. Oh, I like that person. No, it has to do with getting in the trenches and improving a person's life, helping them in their walk with God, helping them to come closer to Christ. How are you doing in terms of investing your life in your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that doesn't even get to the whole story of loving people because most of the people we need to love are not already followers of Jesus. Are we looking for ways to meet needs for those who are still drowning in sin with no hope of saving themselves? Are we doing our best to just keep a safe distance? Lepers, over there. We're going to be over here because we don't want any of that to rub off on us. 
Guys, when God's people think that way, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus called us to. He said, I have sent you into the world that you might bring light to the darkness. We're supposed to pierce the darkness, not hide from it. How are you doing at that? How much of your time and energy and resources are used intentionally touching lives of people who don't know Jesus? If you've been a Christian for a long time, I've been a Christian for a long time. This is a convicting question for me. How many non-Christians are you friends with? I have to work really hard to develop friendships with people who don't know Jesus. Because, because most of the time I spend is with you guys. Who, who are you spending time with who you know doesn't know Jesus? Not just because they're a project for you, but because you love them, because you care. How many people are you developing those relationships with? Do you have real friendships with unsaved people? How do you see them? How do they think you see them? Do you intentionally build relationships that are salt and light based? Or do you just try to stay at a distance? When you think about 2017 for this church, we go, okay, what, what kind of programs do we need? What kind of, sort of things do we need to start and all this kind of stuff? Listen, I am very resistant to starting programs. Every time we start a new program around here, you can believe I have just grappled and struggled with it because I am very re- resistant to starting new programs. You know why? Because if we have something for you on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Saturday morning, Friday night, and all of that, and we keep putting all this pressure on you, come, come, come to these programs, guess what you can't do? All that time when you're sitting in this room, guess what you can't do? You can't coach the neighborhood soccer team. You can't volunteer with the PTA. You can't can't get involved with the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary. You, You can't get to know your neighbors and just have them over for dinner. You don't have time for all that because you're always leaving to get to church. Guys, this is not the church. You are the church. And the mission field is out there. God's church is a movement. And you're a part of that movement. You can't sit still when it comes to reaching those who are in need of Jesus. All of those relationships will change the world. The world is changed one life at a time. The church is not a fortress. It's a movement. The church is a mission center. The church is not an institution. And the people that are out there are not our enemy. They're our mission field. They're the people whom God has called us to love. Grace Fellowship should be known in this community as a church that is serious about loving Jesus and serious about about loving people in practical ways. Because love is about meeting needs. It's not about saying, oh, I feel really warm toward those people. And you and I, as individuals, we should be known for the same thing. So the question of January for me is always, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? We tear down any remaining walls that make this church more of a fortress than a mission center. We go there. Where do we go from here? We invest individually and as a congregation in our own spiritual growth and our walk with Jesus, and we define success the way the Bible defines success, being pleasing to God and knowing Him. 
Where do we go from here? We intentionally invest time and resources in building relationships with people who don't know Jesus, not because they're a project, not because they're an assignment, but because they are people for whom Christ died and we love them and we invest in them. And we do what we're going to start talking about in next week's sermon series. We put down the gavel. We stop being seen as the judge of all the lost people. And instead, we begin to recognize that there is one judge and he has poured out his grace upon us and he intends to pour that grace through us to others. And we'll let him hold the gavel. We invest in our own spiritual growth, worship, quiet times, grace groups, Bible studies, all those things can help with that. We invest in our own spiritual growth. We can't stay stagnant and still be infused with power to touch a lost world. But let's not forget this. Jesus began this movement by loving God and loving people enough to reach out to them at great cost to himself. We're his disciples. And disciples are supposed to resemble their master. So what do we know about him? We know that he left the throne of heaven and humbled himself to become that babe in a manger that we sang songs about last week. We know that he went to a cross and laid down his very life for people who spat at him and mocked him and whipped him and beat him and all those who would do so for the next thousands of years. We know that he cared more about touching the lost than he cared about the cost of touching the lost. We know that helping, his others, and, helping others and serving was his definition of leadership. He laid down his life. We are privileged to be a part of the greatest and most important movement in all of eternity. And we are blessed to be a part of this local church. I love this church with all of my heart. I'm so thankful that God has made my family part of this church. It's an incredible privilege to be a part of this movement with the rest of you. And it's also a sacred trust. It's a stewardship. What are we doing about that? I love U.S. history. I'm in the middle right now of reading a biography that's about this thick of Alexander Hamilton. And I'm reading all about the founding fathers and the different sacrifices that they made in the time of the Revolutionary War and all of those things. And every time I pick up a book about the founding fathers, I'm so astonished by these men, what they risked what they sacrificed, right? And you read their documents and they say, we didn't do it for us. We pledge our fortune, our very lives for our posterity to have freedom. Do you understand the founding fathers by and large were already rich? The founding fathers by and large were already powerful. They would have done just fine with the United States continuing as a colony, but they were moved by a cause. And in that cause, they said, we will risk everything. And most of them died in the process. Why did they do it? They did it for those who would come behind them. And I look at them and I have such respect for these men. And I think, wow, I can't believe they did this for me. Now think about that. How does that compare to what Jesus did for us? Is the cause of independence from Great Britain a more important cause than the cause of independence from sin? Look what Jesus has done. 
and then invited us to be a part of this movement. Guys, we don't need John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and George Washington to stand up in front of us, shake their fist, and talk about freedom. Jesus Christ went to a cross to teach us about the value of freedom. And we sang this morning, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. It's a movement. He's invited us to be a part of this movement. 2016 is behind us. Never going to get those days back. We're never going to have another chance to take advantage of those opportunities and invest in eternity. So the question becomes, what are you going to do with 2017? Is it just me or would you say last year went by really fast? 2017, by all uh, history, tells us it's going to go by faster. But I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, Grace Fellowship, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus.